Hi, I'm Heather Shorin Yoruso, and this is the Spark Zen Podcast. Thank you for listening. My guest today is Marsha Lieberman. She is a long-term Buddhist practitioner who has been affiliated with San Francisco Zen Center since 1989. She is also a good Dharma friend of mine. Marsha taught in the photography departments at UC Berkeley and California College of the Arts. In 2016, she completed graduate studies in Buddhist scholarship at the Institute for Buddhist Studies. Marsha was the head student at Green Gulch Farm for the spring 2017 practice period. We're discussing her third photographic book, Clean Slate, Images from Dogen's Garden, with commentaries by Dogen scholars. It's available from Amazon and local booksellers. So thank you, Marsha, for joining me today on the Spark Zen podcast. It's a pleasure to be in conversation with you. Thank you for inviting me. Let's talk about this lovely book that I have here on my desk called Clean Slate. For those people who aren't familiar with it, would you talk a little bit about this book and what sparked your idea of traveling to Japan to take photographs of the plants that A.A. Dogen might have seen outside of his window. It's a good place to start. And it's a multi-dimensional answer. It, it wasn't like a moment of inspiration. It was kind of like things piling up like a layer cake. The first one was I, I had been immersed in Dogen for a couple of years. And I was, you know, eyes wide shut. I was just wandering around going, my God, what does this mean? I don't understand this. And I read it and reread it in a practice discussion with one of the senior teachers. I expressed my frustration with not being able to understand Dogen. And he said, well, why don't you just think about how much you love gardens and go back to Dogen and look at his relationship to nature. And you can call it the botany of Zen. Well, I love this phrase, the botany of Zen. And I'm curious if you could just unpack that. For, I'd say, the first year that I was working on this project, it was like on my tongue all the time. Botany of Zen, botany of Zen. I just loved the sound of it. I thought it had nothing to do with considering from a botanist point of view what Zen is or how it gets expressed in botany. Eventually, I realized that it doesn't mean anything. Kind of a non-description because there are other books out that are called the botany of. But Zen doesn't really work that way. And I had to push that aside and realize that what had been given to me in that practice discussion was a way forward but I couldn't stay attached to that phrase. And so instead, I came up with and moved towards this idea of clean slate, images from Dobin's garden. And that made more sense to me because the clean slate represented for me a, a neutral space, a neutral place, but a place that is isolated in which to look. And to look at something that perhaps Dogen had looked at. So it didn't change the way I read Dogen. I continued to read Dogen and considering the way he 
relates to nature, which is everywhere, just everywhere in his writing. But in terms of how I was going to share it, how I was going to take that forward, uh, clean slate images from Dogen's garden made more sense to me. But I'm curious too, as many people like myself as well, who start to read Dogen, having never been introduced to him before, which is unfortunate, right? He's such a phenomenal poet and most people don't hear of him unless they uh, stumble upon Zen. But what compelled you to keep reading Dogen's work, even if you weren't understanding what he was talking about? I love his language. I love it both because it's so perplexing and it challenges me. And I love it because it's, it's philosophic, it's poetic. It makes you think about what is he, what is really being said here? It's not straightforward. So it's a zigzag. It's a looping. And I love those shapes of things. I'm not really into from line A to line B. I'm much rather have a more curious and imaginative route in order to understand something. But Dogen, Dogen's unique that way. So I'd say in the early years of reading him, it was really being drawn to the beauty of his words and the confusion I felt, which was uncomfortable, but also inspiring in a certain way. I'm not that familiar with ancient Zen literature, oh, only from just my reading as a Zen priest and practitioner, but there's some way that they're as you're saying, their language is a mystery and they're not, it's poetic. It's oblique. It's not easy to grasp. I love that it's kind of shrouded in this mystery where you actually have to contemplate it. You're not being spoon fed. You know, this isn't some, um, baby food that you just read through and it's digested immediately. There's a way in which it's, it's provocative and evocative. And for me, reading Dogen was just like when I started reading Suzuki Roshi's Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, the imagery, the poetry really spoke to some place just beyond words. Beyond words is good, a good place to land because you're reading words and yet it's beyond it. And you spoke, you speak about that with intuiting words, intuiting language rather than intellectualizing it. Would you talk a little bit about how perhaps photography helps with the expression of that, of that intuition? Fabulous place. <laughs> it's my, my nirvana, my paradise, because all my whole life, uh, making pictures has been a way of expressing myself because the pictures are usually based on an idea. Uh, either an idea I see and then I want to make a picture of it or an idea I'm walking around with and I want to imagine it photographically. Also, there's no language in photography. So it's potentially understandable by lots of different people from lots of different backgrounds. And you mentioned in the preface to the book 
about Zen practitioners looking and observing in a different way. Could you elaborate on that as well as how, if it, if photography has changed for you since you started practicing Zen? When I used to teach photography, I used to request that my students not carry a camera. Why is that? Because I wanted them to look. I just wanted them to go out and look and to see what they noticed and to remember it. I think that it's a gift. The gift of being able to look at things and see them as they are is, is buried under a lot of stuff. When we use that phrase, awakening, being awake, being fully present, just this, just this is kind of, there's a phrase in uh, photography about the decisive moment. And what does that mean? So it's a moment in which what's in front of the photographer and what gets recorded, what's seen, what's looked at, all comes together in this and it's usually a very powerful moment. When you take the picture, you know it. I know it when I've taken a picture like that. I can just feel it when I get to see the actual recording, the actual image. It's pretty great. I was thinking as I was contemplating or just talking back on some of the other things I've taught, and maybe this is another way to describe this. I, I taught a course that was called the dwelling. And I had, I had students go out and pick someone and interview them and then photographed where they dwell. And the, the word, key word there was dwell. It wasn't about where they live or where their home is or where their work is. It's where they dwell. And so I think dwell, dwelling, kind of being in the place, noting your surroundings is a good bridge between photography and Zen in some ways. When I did all this research and I had these graduate students from Kyoto University and, and we were going to all these places that Dogen had dwelled and imagining what, what he might've seen when he looked out the window, where he, he pushed the Soji screen aside. What was it that he saw? I think that's really, for me, you're talking about surroundings and what is it that he saw. I like to hover on that because I'm not sure in our modern society that we are so aware of what our surroundings are and the effect that the surroundings have on us. So could you place then Dogen in his temple, looking out his shoji screen and how being surrounded by nature might have affected or how did it affect, right? How did it affect his writing, his, his being? I think a good place to start in answering that really well put question is that first of all, you have to kind of go along with me and my idea of what he saw. This is not, this is not a historical book. It is not factual, nor did I go and make photographs of the garden or 
do anything that would be a documentation. This is like a, a leap. Where the leap ends up is one blossom or one leaf on a slate board. And for me, that realized the idea of spending time being quiet, being still, and looking at something somewhat out of context, but still attached to the shrub or whatever. It's, you know, it's not something I took into a studio. I'm in the garden that Dogen looked at, but I'm kind of up close. And that up close is how I feel. And that's what I feel his language does with Buddhism. He brings us up close so we can take in so many different ways of considering what we're practicing and how we do it. When I was at these sites, many of the temples have these soji screens and I get really interested in the history of the soji screen and what it means and why they, why they occur. And one of the things I read was that the ability to slide the soji aside and take them out and put them in a closet means that a living space is more spacious, open, and more connected to the garden outside. So when you're in the, when you're on site, when you're in a temple or in someone's home and you slide the screen aside, there's a framing, just like photography. There's a particular framing that happens. It's a rectangular shape and it encases or it isolates this view. And the sliding of the screen is, is really, really important because the sliding, as opposed to a door opening in, in Western architecture, the sliding also is kind of magical. It kind of like appears. And it also breaks down that sense of a boundary, welcoming nature in the interior, the exterior, that, that wall being broken down between what's outside and what's inside. Absolutely. And the same with the Ngawa, you know, so there, there's the, these, these sites that I went to are, are very much designed in terms of what you're going to see when you look out into nature and, and nature coming inside as well. The Ngawa. E-N-G-A-W-A is that wooden walkway around a meditation hall, or I imagine around any building. It's like our veranda. It is, but it's all the way around the building. The house is in the garden, and the garden is in the house. So there's no way that Dogen wouldn't have seen, wouldn't have looked out a window. There's no way that he, that he would not have walked and looked at the garden. I mean, you don't normally walk through a Japanese garden. You view it. Interesting. You don't walk through as much as you view it. I think it's about thought and what gets evoked by immersing yourself with your mind in the garden. I don't think it's uh, it's a physical experience. Like a lot of times, like when you walk in a garden, you know, you're touching things. You might smell. There are a lot of senses that go on smell of the garden or the you, the sound of your feet on the pathway 
and and those are all important. But the kind of looking, the kind of seeing that we're kind of talking about right now is is a much more of an immersion and a sensibility. I I recall my experiences of being at Tassahara Zen Mountain Center with you during one of the cloistered practice periods. And then in Gawa around the meditation hall, when you're standing on that in Gawa, even though it's attached to a building, you're near the building, but you're also in nature, like you're saying. And the contemplation that arises on that in Gawa, and of course the whole meditation hall has shoji screens all around it, but just the ability to see the sun coming in in the morning into the meditation hall. And then if the, one of the shoji screens is open on top, seeing that flaming red Asian maple, right? Just uh, amazing. Tassahara, you really get to see the seasons because it's an environment that has a deciduous. There's a real difference between being in a place where everything is evergreen all the time as opposed to expression of the seasons. You know, the first time I went to Tassahara, I purposely went in the winter. And I remember people saying, oh, it's going to be so cold. It won't be blooming. There won't be flowers. And I said, great. I want to see the leaves fall. I want to see the trees bare. And I want to see spring arrive. That for me was essential to my, my first practice. In your preface to the book, you have this line where you say, honoring the impermanence of all life. And I would love to hear you talk about that word honor, which I very rarely hear anyone say honor unless it has to do with a judge. So, so what's your sense of this word honoring the impermanence? And also you're focusing on the, the photographs as m- many of them are not when the flowers or plants are in full bloom. Some of them are before they start to bloom. Others are when they are in decay. So could you speak about the teaching of impermanence and how clearly nature expounds the Buddha Dharma? It expounds this uh, lesson to all of us if we pay attention about the fleetingness of, of each moment. Well, let me say that the word honor, I grew up with that word. When I think about it, it means kind of a a combination of an admiration and a respect and and embedded in it is a sense of history. That this thing has come around, come around, come around. It's not a, it's not something that's brand new. It's been tarnished and polished and then tarnished again. And to honor it is a way to show respect and appreciate, really appreciate what it is that I'm honoring. And why, why honor impermanence? Why focus on plants when their leaves are falling off or they are getting brown on the edges or before they even begin their, well, I guess they're always in the process of blossoming and decaying. So why not capture the blossom? Well, normally that's what you do capture is the blossom. 
is the springing forth, is the representation of youth and arriving. But to me, that's, that's like only one step on the path. There's everything else, which is so poignant and rich and decay and withering and being nibbled at, browning at the edges, falling over. They all are ways, just kind of representations of impermanence. And I think that when we want to just see blooms, you know, if you've ever gotten a flower arrangement from somebody, they usually are flowers about to bloom or just blooming. And I think that that's just only part of the picture. I mean, there was a time when I was doing the altar arrangements at Green Gulch Farm, and I started doing the arrangements with what I call mature flowers. And then there was, they were spent, they were tired, they were withered. And they were beautiful. And uh, that didn't last too long because nobody liked it. But I love that your photographs in the book are capturing the beauty of this, of this impermanence and just exploring what is it about our fixed view, to use a Dogen term, of beauty. What is beautiful? And beautiful is the entire picture. Beauty has a very narrow range. and I think that's unfortunate. I think beauty can be so, so many, many, many elements and phases of the life of Ascension P. I remember actually when I first went to graduate school, there was a, there was a lot of talk about don't make a beautiful picture. What I took from that is that beauty is only one element, one aesthetic, one characteristic, one thing to notice. When we notice something, when we look at something, when we see something, we're often encouraged to look for the beauty in it, but in a very narrow band. So when you look up close at these images in the book, they don't allow you to move around. You're kind of confronted in a way with this somewhat damaged leaf. And then um, my hope is the question comes up, well, why, why, why am I looking at this? What's here that I can appreciate and consider in terms of impermanence and what Dogen's words mean and what he's teaching me. So you could say they're like little punctuation marks that have to do with Dogen's teaching. And also, you know, Dogen he has that wonderful phrase, in aversion, the weeds grow, right? And in grasping, the blossoms fall. So the sense of the obsession with beauty, it's such a grasping of our society that that blossoming is thwarted in some way. That reaching, grasping, longing for that beauty causes a lot of people to suffer. You want to read Dogen, it's... It's like the whole universe is rushing through him, refracting through him. And that's what comes through, not only with his imagery, but also with the cadence. Of course, I'm not reading it in ancient Japanese, but the cadence of his language is also, to me, evocative of nature. 
I feel like I'm in the middle of a rushing stream when I'm reading his work or that I'm actually riding the clouds with him when I'm reading his work, where I, I can feel those mountains and see those mountains walking when I read his work. He allows us to look the, and to look in, in the way that he's looking or how I imagine he's looking. Looking is, is, is not just the eye, you know, it's everything and, and how we take something in including beauty. There's so much now being written about, you know, walking in forests. I mean, in Japan, there's actually a, there's a whole ritual around that and being among trees and being in nature. And you could say as well, what his poetry does for us, it's also an encouragement to, to go out and to be in nature, whatever that means, whether it's, it's a walk in the garden or a forest or someplace where there's just lots of sentient beings, as he says, uh, speaking the Dharma. I love this line, pine and bamboo, endlessly speak on my behalf. That's like a chocolate bar to me, that line. <laughs> I was thinking about Dogen's piece on valley sounds and mountain colors where he talks about hearing with the eyes and with the ears. And in that, he says to hear with the ear is an everyday matter, but to hear with the eye is not always so. In the next paragraph, he says, there is a common saying that expresses this, totally superb, totally solid. An earlier Buddha said, it covers heaven, it encompasses the earth, this is the purity of spring pine, the magnificence of an autumn chrysanthemum. Just this. When you reach this realm, you are a master of humans and divas. If you teach others before arriving in this realm, you will do great harm to them. Without knowing the spring pine or the autumn chrysanthemum, how can you nourish others and how can you cut through their roots of confusion? Wow. Yes. Wow. There are other quotations that talk about the, the knowing of something means you have to get really close and completely immerse yourself in it. And so the purity of the spring pine or knowing the autumn chrysanthemum, what is that knowing? Having the capacity to honor it and to see it and to accept it. That quality in someone is what I think needs to preface teaching others. And when you're saying this about what does it mean to hear with the eye and to know that spring pine and the purity of that pine and the magnificence of the chrysanthemum, you're also a beekeeper for San Francisco Zen Center. And that image of the bees just fully taking in whatever flower they're on when they're getting the pollen. There is no separation for that bee. It's just in it. It's, it's one with that flower. And for me, that, that speaks to this purity of the pine, this non-dual awareness, this expression of how earth trees fences, tiles, spring pines, chrysanthemums, they all expound the Buddha Dharma.
in Atasohara, there's that tree behind the Ngawa. Is it a crabapple tree that's got the pretty pinkish flowers? The crabapple tree. And there used to be a red quince, which has no longer flourished, hasn't flourished in a while. But that, anyway, getting back to that crabapple tree, those bees, watching those bees, I have so many photographs up close of those bees on those blossoms. And you just, the whole world is just vibrating there with those bees. And being somebody who grew up mostly outside of the Bronx in New York and then spent most of my life in a buildings, getting to Tansavara and hearing and seeing with all my senses, instead of watching the sunset or a bee on my screensaver on my laptop, actually to be there and have a full body mind experience of those bees on that tree. What comes up that is different between the image you see on the screen, which can also be very moving. Yes. Uh, yes. And you're standing in front of the tree and watching the bees move about and you're next to them. The difference for me is it's more of a whole body experience to be out on the Ngawa, hearing the bees, smelling the fragrance of the tree, feeling maybe the breeze on my skin, the wood of the Ngawa on my feet. So it's no longer just a visual, a one-dimensional visual of staring at a bee or a crab apple tree. It's me being part of that experience. And it's much more vital and palpable when you're there in person rather than me staring at a screen, even though still the perceived and the perceiver are not one, not two, you don't feel it as much. It's not like spring flowing through spring, right? Heather flowing through Heather incorporates those bees buzzing in the blossoms of that crab apple tree. Yeah, I, I like that description. I would add to that there's a sense of intimacy and a sense of time passing. Because when you see a photograph of something or something on the screen, it's a recording and you can go back and look at it again and again and again. But when you look at the crab apple at 6.30 a.m. on Tuesday in May, at that moment, only then, and it's gone. That's really wonderful to, to point out that there is the passage of time and I get to experience that crab apple tree and those bees and myself at different points throughout the day, at different points before the tree blooms, before the bees show up while they're there when the tree starts losing its blooms, the intimacy of that experience also means I'm more intimate with myself. And it minimizes the differences and it allows you to merge just for a nanosecond. There was an occurrence where I was able to witness a well-known gardener pruning a, a very, very old tree. And it was, it was like being in a Buddha hall. There was a tremendous spiritual sensibility to it. There was a tremendous sense of reverence for the tree. There was great gratitude for the tree being there and 
such earnestness in wanting to take good care of the tree and recording that as well. So, you know, he stood next to the tree after he and his crew had finished and he was photographed next to the tree with the slate board with all the information on it. It was to commemorate and to acknowledge. I appreciate your mentioning that story because I feel that children seem to be naturally in that space of interconnectedness with our surroundings. And I remember as a child, I was blessed to live in a house that was on a corner lot. And we had this gorgeous Japanese magnolia. I don't know how it got there in our front yard. And across from it, we had a beautiful, majestic uh, copper beech nut tree. And then also another one on the side of the house. They all must have been at least 200 years old because the house I lived in was about 200 years old. And I remember just as a child that Magnolia was so big that I could just climb up and sit in the branches like I was relaxing on a chaise lounge and just Uh taking in the little world, my whole neighborhood, people coming by, dogs, mailmen, cars, just being in that tree. And of course, I wouldn't have said I feel I don't feel separate for being in this tree. But that sense of quietude, belonging, and and I remember when that beech nut copper tree, the the one on the side of the house, when I came home from college, they had cut it down, and I just started crying. And my father said when we had to cut it because it was sick, he's like I I cried like it was my brother, and I just had so many fond memories of touching the gray bark and just being in its presence. Glad you had that friendship. I would wish that for every child. What we lose, what we, that children have is the wish and the capacity um, to get our hands dirty. (laughs) To be muddy. Yes, yes. Uh, To friend as you did climbing up in the tree and be next to nature and appreciate what a strong force it is and also it's a way of growing our humility because it is such a strong force i was a child who uh, loved getting muddy <laughs> and um and that was a a conflict that my mother and i had because she she didn't think that was a good characteristic. I really like getting into the dirt and the soil. But I think children have a a lot less between them and nature. And as we grow up, we separate ourselves more. And that's how we do damage. We exploit the environment because we don't understand that we are the environment and the environment is us. And maybe you could help me with that word environment, because for me, it sounds like I'm being surrounded by the environment rather than I am integrated into the environment. So I, I want to come up with a new word instead of environment. <laughs> well, I would suggest place. Place. How, how so? Place. It's just pretty straightforward. Place can be anywhere where you are. 
It doesn't have any adjectives that go with it. It has the potential to influence you or be influenced. And it just feels simpler than environment. Environment feels more intellectual. And I think it's been overused. Environmentally speaking, our environment is this, our environment is that. And, and I think that that pushes it away as opposed to place. If we're in a place, we care about it and we consider it and we want to take care of it. If we're in an environment, I'm not sure we do. I like that differentiation. To me, place is about dwelling. It asks us to invest ourselves in a place and to give to a place. If the place, if the living world is just on the other side of your soji screen, which is basically just rice paper windows, if you will, you're more apt to take care of that place because you see that place is you and you are that place. That deep connection is there. And I love this line. I love many lines of Dogen, but this line, pine and bamboo endlessly speak on my behalf. That just gives me goosebumps. Yeah, isn't it great? It just turns the whole thing on its head, right? Yeah, I think for me growing up, it was the Japanese magnolia and the copper beech nut trees are always speaking on my behalf and listening to my heart. I think the important part is the endlessly speak on my behalf. They endlessly speak on my behalf. They care. They are connected. And I need to listen to them as well as see them. Yes, and I, I think that, as you were saying, somehow as we grow older, some of us stop being able to hear and feel the, the pine and bamboo speaking on our behalf. If you allow it, your curiosity begins to diminish. I mean, I'm an old lady, I'm 77, and that's, that's something I'm always thinking about, being your friend, supporting and sustaining and nourishing my curiosity. For me, reading Dogen's writing stokes my curiosity because I'm like, what, what is he talking about? And his, the, you know, whole worlds are there, right? That fish and dragons and humans and hungry ghosts, we all view water differently, right? We drink it, the fish swim in it, the dragons see it as the true palace. So he's constantly shaking up our worldview and, and telling us literally to investigate this further. So in the Bendua, he describes uh, what I would call a place, and he says, this space is no other than bamboo, plum, white chrysanthemum blossoms, red berries, ginkgo leaves, green weeds, and cedar branches. That's just what he's observing. It's as simple as that, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, that's the other part of Dogen that I, I am drawn to, is that I think he wants to keep it simple. I love that image 
that the space is, it's no other than what's right here in front of us in this natural world. And that our perception of the world is greatly influenced by, is literally almost only influenced by our own sensory apparatus and our position, our Dharma position in the world, right? My Dharma position as a human, as opposed to the Dharma position of a fish or a frog or a pine tree or a fence or a dragon. Isn't it with the fish says, what water? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm swimming. What do you mean? I'm swimming. <laughs> that what's happening here? If you want to speak a little bit about the Hana Kotoba, I think that's really fascinating that the Japanese have these emotional words to um, describe flowers and plants. Thank you for that invitation. There's a quote that I'd like to include that, that Dobin said about how the time of spring arrives. And it inspired me in terms of doing this book. It goes like this. Times have color such as blue, yellow, red, and white. Spring does not arrive as a time, but rather that apart from the facts of flowers blooming, birds singing, grass growing, breezes blowing, there is not spring. I like the way he uses language there, and I think that it also reflects what we were just talking about in terms of curiosity. You mentioned in the book that the Japanese aren't so agog about roses like other societies seem to be. And I really appreciate that because when I was at Tasahara, there's so many other flowers there, like, for instance, those odd-looking naked ladies, just the stall, the tall green stalks with these gorgeous pastel pink blossoms, almost like a, looks like a little bit of a lily in some ways. I've never seen one of those before. And I'm like, wow, you know, the dominance again of a single flower that's supposed to represent the ultimate beauty is also a failing on our on our part, I think, to take this one flower and say, look how beautiful it is. Nothing can compare to it. And then you have the white chrysanthemum, you have the naked, the naked ladies, you have the quince bush. And for me, being a Tassahara, my, my whole world was altered because I got to be obviously in nature, freezing in my little tatami room with all these soji screens, but also just to see see these naked ladies and to see the quince tree and to see a persimmon tree blooming down by the pool. I love that you got to see the naked ladies. The other thing that's great about that is because they're both tuberous, they totally disappear and are tall and very noble and then totally disappear. They're not pretty when they start to die. I mean, it's, it's pretty dramatic if I remember correctly when they start to decay. Well, I, I think I'd take you on that. Yeah, <laughs> of course. Well, also, I love pink, so I, don't, I never want to see the pink blossoms fade. Uh, well, you know, the blossoms have that color for only one reason. Yes, to attract pollinators. Since you mentioned white chrysanthemum, I have in the book, I quote a poem that where Dobin spoke about chrysanthemums. Would you like to hear it? Yes, I would love to. So it's on page 54, and, and it's opposite this white chrysanthemum that was a singular bloom. 
in Osaka at uh, Hirakata Park. And Dogen said in a poem, oh, I should just preface that by saying that in Japan, they have a whole holiday around the ninth month, the ninth day about these chrysanthemums. So he says, last year on the ninth month, leaving this place, this year on the ninth month, coming from this place, stop dwelling on passing days, months and years. Look with delight in the undergrowth where chrysanthemums bloom. What's your sense of what he's trying to convey? Be here right now and look at the delight. Look, look at the bloom, the history, and don't dwell on the past or the future, but just appreciate this very moment with delight when you look at this incredible chrysanthemum. When he says the last line of looking with delight in the undergrowth. So it's when we're caught up in the past or longing for the future, we don't see the undergrowth. We're not, we're not curious. We're not present to peek under the undergrowth and see that chrysanthemum blooming. I love that. And of course a child would do that. Absolutely. Right. Yes. The child would naturally be looking under the undergrowth and delighting in it. For me, when I think about practicing Zen and, and most especially my year to Tassahara, which is where you and I first met, um, is a sense of wonder that I feel practicing Zen suffuses my life with. There's a sense of wonder and that curiosity of seeking out the undergrowth and not pining for what's past. One of my favorite haikus is a uh, bird in Kyoto pining for Kyoto. Why are you pining for it? Like that, it's such a, and of course, birds aren't really pining. It's humans that pine, but there's something so just, I don't even know how to describe it, but that, that poem just to me says so much about our human experience and what we miss. We're right where we need to be and sometimes right where we want it to be. And yet that sense of lack, which birds and chrysanthemums don't experience the sense of lack. Our greatest loss lies in failing to see the natural thing near at hand and before our eyes. I think that's a wonderful way to end. Thank you for listening to the Sparks End podcast. I hope you found this conversation illuminating and engaging. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to my Spark Zen Substack newsletter and follow me on Twitter at Spark Zen. Share the spark of Zen. Share the spark of liberation. Share the spark of compassion.